so much for, um, for a glimpse of what you've done among the pay people for, uh, for raising up our brothers and sisters to send over there, uh, and raising up the church um, in America and, and uh, all of their partners to send them. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a hand in that work um, so that the pay people could hear about their living hope, um, the crucified and raised Son of God. Lord, we thank you for giving us what we pleaded with you for for the last 10 years or better. Brothers and sisters among the pay, thank you. Thank you for answering. Uh, thank you for answering that prayer. We thank you that your spirit has caused them to be born again by the hearing of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, and they are now in covenant relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray for our brothers and sisters over there. We pray for, um, yeah, for the Reese's still as they transition away from uh, language, culture, uh, creation to Christ so that there can be a church. Now they are teaching a fledgling church how to, how to be established. Um, and so, Lord, it's still an impossible work. And so we... We turn to you with open hands and say, would you bless them? Would you keep them? Would you cause your face to shine upon them? Would you root them in the love of your Son? We pray, Lord, that just as they have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so that they would walk in Him, and that they would be rooted and established in Him. Um, that's a work, Holy Spirit, that you alone can do, and so we pray that you would do it through the Reese's and the Joneses and Candace, and um, we pray that you would continue to bless the work there. Um, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for letting us be a part of what you're doing there. Lord, as we, as we turn our attention to your word, would you, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you help us to think well and as a result to live, um, to live in accordance with the truth of your gospel? And um, I just ask you for a blessing on these next few moments that, uh, that you would build us up and, um, and use your word to do it. And we ask it in the name of Jesus for his sake. Amen. All right. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Um, you guys know uh, the, the sensation of being at like a family gathering, maybe a Christmas or Thanksgiving, a bunch of people there, and you have to leave early. And you start to, like, it's that weird moment of, like, should I just slip out? Proper etiquette, I've been told, is you just go. You don't say your goodbyes, especially at a party, like a wedding or whatever. You just, you just go because if you start saying goodbyes, like, everything kind of hinges around you. So you're just supposed to kind of slip out. But sometimes you make the mistake of saying, hey, you know, we got we to gotta get out of here. So, you know, bye. And you tell one couple, and it takes, like, you know, five or ten minutes. And then you're walking to the door, and you see another family member that you have to hug their necks and tell them goodbye. Meanwhile, three hours later, you're still saying goodbye, and you could have probably just hung out the whole time. Um, that's what this text seems like to me. So Paul is finishing up his, uh, finishing up his missionary, his third missionary journey, which is more of a missionary lifestyle. Back in Acts 19, he makes the resolve in his spirit to pass through Macedonia, Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after there, I must also see Rome. So he's, he's resolved in the spirit to go and um, 
to, to go to Jerusalem and then also to go to Rome. And he's been basically on his way to Jerusalem all this time. And it seems like we've been in this section of scripture for a really long time. Well, today he's going to say sort of his last goodbyes before he wakes up in, um, wakes up in Rome or wakes up in, uh, in Jerusalem and then is going to get arrested and then subsequently sent to Rome. So what I want to do is I want to spend uh, just a few moments thinking through these things. There's a lot of really interesting, um, the text doesn't need a whole lot of help. Y'all don't need my help on this text. Doesn't need a whole lot of exposition. And so I'm going to spend probably the majority of our time thinking about concepts that we can gain from texts like these. So you're in Acts chapter 21, and beside verse 1, I want you to write the word torn. Torn. The text says, And when we had parted from them uh, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patra. The word parted from them literally uh, would be rendered uh, tearing ourselves away. When we have torn ourselves away, the last text we looked at in Acts is Paul um, uh, meeting with the Ephesian elders and sort of this, uh, these deeply meaningful friendships and relationships that he has with them are sort of at their, at their climax. They're saying their last goodbyes. He tells them, you're never going to see my face in life. You'll see me in glory, but you'll never see me here again. And so it's this like massive, um, weighty, glorious conversation that he, uh, that he has with them. And Luke describes leaving the elders of the Ephesian church as being torn, tearing ourselves away. It's an amazing picture. He has faithfully loved and served the body, and so leaving them is never easy. Um, we were listening to a sermon uh, this, uh, this week, Timmy and I were, and this guy was talking about um, how, how, um, how commonplace it is in the Church of America for a pastor to kind of say, hey... Um, yeah, I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm called over here. There's another body over here and I'm going and he gives a two weeks notice and then, um, and then he, and then he goes and he said, guys, that is what is meant. What Jesus means by a hireling. He's not a real shepherd. He doesn't care for the flock. If he can just casually say, see ya, like I got, I got a better gig and he's out. And it happens all the time where guys are, uh, serving in a, in a body and then they, and then they bail. Um, a hireling can bail at two weeks notice and a clean conscience. But a good shepherd cannot do that. A good shepherd cannot do that. They must tear themselves away um, if, the Lord, if the Lord wills. Let me give you an axiom. When Christ unites you to himself, he unites you to his people. People loosely united to the body of Christ are therefore loosely united to Christ. Um, listen. We are saved in Christ. We're saved from our sin. We're saved from hell. We're saved from the dominion of Satan. But we are saved to a whole host of other realities. We're saved to sonship with God. We're saved to the kingdom. We're saved to the, uh, the bondservanthood of Christ. And we're saved into the body of Christ. We are parts that have been put together as a whole. And when you are rightly united to Christ, you are what is called part of his body. And so for a hand to just be out on its own, that's a dead hand. We're to be connected with the body of Christ. And, and Paul demonstrates this when he says, when Luke tells us, when we had torn ourselves away from them, we set sail. Now, 
If you write in your Bibles, write beside verse 2 and following the word trip. Watch this. This is very interesting. So they set sail, and they made a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, uh, and from there to uh, Patara. And having found a ship, so that's an important phrase, having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we did come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed by Syria and landed at Tyre. And for there, the ship was, uh, was to unload its cargo and having sought out the disciples, again, having sought, having found, having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days, okay? Now, what I want to show you here is the, the, there's two um, kind of amazing realities. One is they're going somewhere and they don't know exactly how they're going to get there. Like Paul, uh, the, the idea of having found, having sought out the disciples, they're, they, he knows he wants to go to Jerusalem, but he's not sure how he's going to get there or what route he's going to take. And so he has to trust the Lord. Like, have you ever been in that scenario where you're like, I know I'm supposed to go there and I have no idea what the road is going to look like? Well, that's Paul and that's Luke. And they're willing to trust the Lord and walk forward. But the other thing I want to show you is how, um, how many places they go to. Think about this. Luke could just as easily say, Paul left the Ephesian elders and he made his roundabout way to go to Jerusalem, and he made it. Why is he putting all of these places in there? Well, I don't know all of the different reasons, but I have um, a theory that I want to throw at you. I won't fight you for it, but I think it's true. So um, the idea of consistent plantedness is a blessing that most people in the church should enjoy. Okay? Uh, consistent plantedness. Uh, where you and your grandpa or your dad and your grandpa and your children's children's children are going to be rooted in a particular spot and enjoy generations of love and faithfulness and the body of Christ there in a particular place. I think that's probably the vast majority of what most Christians enjoy. If you measure it by the New Testament, it seems to be that, uh, that Paul and Barnabas and these guys that go out and, and try and spread the gospel in other places, though not strange, they're not, it's not the majority of people are going out. So, so rootedness and plantedness and long-term faithful service in a particular place, I think is the New Testament norm. But it's also true that there's something in us that longs for the type of adventure that that mission will grant us, that taking the gospel into every nation will actually give us. So think about this with me. Our culture is stacked with people who, um, when they think about the open road, like me and a motorcycle and a backpack and a tent and a bottle of water, that's glory, right? Where like just, the, uh, if you think about, if you've ever read uh, Jack Kerouac, uh, his uh, his book about leaving somewhere in the Northeast and going to California. It's probably one of the most wretched books ever written, gave rise to uh, the beatnik movement and then the hippie movement. Um, but the idea was he sold Americans on this like life and adventure is found in the open road. And the reality is that that sense of adventure that's, that's the reason RVs are a thing. It's the reason um, students graduated from college and taking a semester abroad. What are you going to do when you graduate? Well, I'm going to go semester abroad. I'm just going to go hiking. Where are you going to go? Appalachian Trail. I'm going to go to the Himalayas. I'm going to go explore. 
We say, why, why is that a thing? Why are people doing that? Why? Well, I think it's because it's part of what it means to bear the image of God. Okay? Um, when some people hear about, uh, about people taking a backpack and going into rainforests and, and diving into uh, deep blue lagoons, some people want to throw out the idea of, like, get a job, hippie. Like, it's time to, it's time to get, be responsible, uh, get a job, make some money. Um, but I want to tell you that adventure is part of what it means to bear the image of God. So I'm going to give you another axiom. Every single virtue is merely the bearing of Christ's image. So uh, there, there's a second part, but I want to make sure you understand this. Every single virtue, everything that we say is good about mankind, all that is is bearing the image of Christ. So cardinal virtues, for those of you who don't know, wisdom, courage, moderation, justice. And then you've got uh, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. Every single aspect of, of those virtues what it means to, to bear Christ's image, to look like Jesus. He was wise. He was courageous. He was what it meant to be wise, what it meant to be courageous, moderate, just. Um, and so we, when we practice virtue, we're bearing the image of Christ. And I want to tell you as well that all sin is a warped virtue. Do you know that? That uh, th Think about this with me, that every ounce of sin or wickedness is something good in us being put to, the wrong, uh, put to the wrong work. So let's think about pride, the chief of, the chief of sins, right? Self-absorption. Um, Gracie's buddy in Houston said that she was driving to work and she saw two guys outside of their car just duking it out, right? Road rage. Why is that? Well, because somebody's kingdom and somebody's God got stepped on. And so, but their God is themselves and my own rights and nobody's gonna, you know, cut me off and shoot me the bird. And so I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna, in an angry way, I'm gonna fight for my own rights. And we might look at that rightly so and say, man, that's just wretched. But let me ask you something. Did Jesus ever go to blows over anything? Did he ever get really, really mad? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. If memory serves, he made a whip and beat people. And he kicked over their tables. And he said, get out. Stop making my father's house a house of um, trade. It's to be a house of prayer. And so the, the only difference is the object of what we're fighting for. Why are you so angry that you're punching your neighbor? Why are you so angry that you're driving men out of the temple? Those are different objects. It's, it's the same Impetus. It's it's the, um, the the men fighting on the street corner. Th that is a, a picture of the fallenness of the image of God, being born imperfectly in sinners. Christ is the is the the picture and the pattern of real of real virtue. But it's always the same. Lust is the same way. We look at lust and we say, man, that's it's terrible. Well, let me ask you, gentlemen, is it sinful for you to be attracted to your wife? Of course not. It's, it's part of what it means to bear God's image. So every, every virtue is just us looking like Jesus to greater or less degree. But every sin is just warped virtue. It's just us failing in our, in our attempt to bear the image of God. So this is the reason I, I want to bring this up. We are to be world explorers and world conquerors who bodily go where no one else 
That's not bodily, it's boldly. Who boldly go where no one else will go so that we can take the gospel to those who've never heard of Christ. So when you see the hippie with a backpack thumbing a ride on 71 and he stinks to high heaven and all he's got is the clothes in his back and and a water bottle, he's actually imperfectly bearing the image of God. He just doesn't know what he's doing. He's doing it in the wrong way at the wrong time for the very wrong reason. Um, Gracie and I, we went to Sutherland's this week and uh, we pulled up in our giant Martin mobile and there was a, um, there was a school bus that had been gutted and the guy had made a, um, an RV out of it and it's painted all cool and hippie like. And so we, we pulled up beside it and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. And so we went into our shopping, we came out. And uh, he was in there just working, and so I, I pulled around. I was like, "Hey, man, did you did you build this?" I saw his license plate from Wisconsin. Are you are you from Wisconsin? What's going on? So he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we we you know gutted this thing and built it, and just kind of driving around the country. We're we're actually coming not from uh, Wisconsin, but from Florida." And I was like, "Man, that's awesome!" Like, so he has to be an adventure seeker, right? Well, in my mind, any adventure seeker is going to want to see people wherever he goes, and so I was like, "Hey, dude." You want to come over for lunch? It's lunchtime. Come over and hang out. And he was like, oh, well, no, I got, I got some work to do. So he, so he shut me down. Like, okay, so we pull off. And Gracie goes, that's just weird. You're that adventurous that you're going to drive across country, and then you're going you're gonna to turn your back on an adventure that comes to you? Now, here's the, here's the deal. He wouldn't turn his back on a, on a solo adventure. Like if I would have told him, hey, there's a, there's a swimming hole that nobody knows about, he's definitely going there. Why wouldn't he come with me? It's because the virtue is warped. He doesn't want people, right? Follow Instagram. That's, he, he did tell us that. He said, hey, follow us on Instagram, but don't have lunch with us, right? Don't, don't have a conversation. But when you see on Instagram all these guys like out exploring the wild blue yonder, most of their selfies are just themselves, and there ain't no people around. But listen to me. There's still something about the image of God that's being born out as they seek adventure. We are to be explorers. We're to be, um, when God commanded men, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He had in his mind the sailing of the seven seas, the climbing of Everest, landing on the moon. That's our stuff. That's that's God, his, um, his image being born uh, in us. So, Uh, a couple of exhortations here. Watch for those things in your life that make you feel alive and try and connect them to both the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, right? We have... Uh, we have guys that want to that want to that want to explore, like David Livingston, who says, "Like, I, ju- I my my life ambition is to evangelize the continent of Africa and to find the root of the Nile, to find where the Nile starts. It's never been found before, and so he just gives his entire life to exploration and to evangelism." We have in our church very interesting. We have a bunch of young men who love to garden, who love to take a spot. And make it flourish. And, and the, the old world is to husband the garden, to be a husbandman, where you, where you um, cause it to bear fruit. That's part of what it means to bear the image of God. We need to connect that to both cultural mandate and great commission. Uh, Judah's favorite thing in the world is to punch people, right? Um, and sometimes he does that um, uh, sinfully, right? Lucy's been punched a couple of times. Do we go in and say, hey, you should never punch anybody? 
No, we do not. We just say, you should only punch these kind of people and you should only punch them for this reason. You should care about God and not your own glory. So we're trying to shape that virtue. Um, Lucy, this is fantastic. She uh, took her on a daddy date to, uh, to uh, Walmart and she saw this super cheap pitcher, lemonade pitcher, and it's got pictures of lemonades all over it. Can I get that? Yes, we got it. I didn't even look at it. We get home and there's a giant hole in the bottom. And so I'm like, oh, okay, this is a piece of junk. Well, Eli sees it and he says, look, if you're going to do a lemonade stand, which is what she wants to do, uh, just use this two-gallon lemon jug that we've got, lemonade jug that we've got, and you can sell a lot more, right? And so uh, it's a good idea. Gracie goes to Lucy and she says, hey, instead of using this one that doesn't, you know, it's broken, we'll take it back and we'll just use the one we've got. And Lucy goes, no, no. My lemonade stand has to be beautiful. It has to be decorated. Now listen, is she being frumpy and fussy or is she bearing God's image as a female? Let me ask you ladies, do you want just some cave to live in? Or do you want to paint the walls and hang pictures and make it beautiful, right? All the dudes are laughing. All the ladies are nodding. This is what it means to connect um, what, what we might look and just say, it's just, you know, just human impulse or just desires. And we might look down on those things. But listen to me. That's part of what it means to bear the image of God. So when I'm looking at this, at Paul going sailing, and he's going to all these different islands, he's... Have you guys ever seen a picture of the Mediterranean Sea? It's kind of beautiful. Is he there for beauty seeking? Is he there just so that he can have an adventure and like, you know, be, I I don't know, an explorer? No. He's there because he wants to preach Christ where he's never been known. But he's also not turning down the adventure when God sends it his way. Um, One of my uh, favorite singer-songwriters, he said one time, he goes, Do you think it was at all fun for David to kill Goliath? What do you think? A young man going out, asking, asking around in the army, all these cowards that won't fight him. He's like, hey, 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 what's going to happen to the guy who kills that guy? And he asks around and he gets accused of just being a glory seeker. And part of that is probably something he should wear. Like, yes, it's absolutely awesome to kill giants. And so the idea is, uh, we need to court those things, those parts of, uh, parts of the image of God that, that, um, that come out of us, and we need to tie them to both cultural mandate and uh, the Great Commission. Okay, so right out beside verse 4, the word trouble. This is a very, very interesting text. We're gonna, uh, I'm going to tie verse 4 and, uh, yeah, a, a, another verse down the way. I'm going to tie these together. So watch when they arrive. Um, when they arrive at, arrive at Tyre, so they landed at Tyre, for there was a ship. For there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, by the way, these are strangers in Christ. Paul has never been here. He doesn't know these people. So think about this: you're on your way to what he's already been. He's already told us. The Spirit testifies to him in every city. That, uh, that tribulation and uh, that afflictions, imprisonment and afflictions await him. So he's on his way to Jerusalem to suffer for the name of Jesus. And you're going into a new town that you've never been to before. What is your, what are you going to do? Well, Paul's very first thing to do is to seek out the disciples. I don't know how they found them, but they found them. They sought him out. And it says they stayed there for seven days. Now, again, total strangers, total strangers. 
and through the Spirit, they, meaning the disciples, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay? They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we're going we're gonna to skip a little bit, and we're going to come down uh, to verse, um, uh, verse 9. Look at verse 9. Same thing. They're in a different place now. He had four. Uh, this is Philip the Evangelist had four. Uh, I tell you what. Let's just read the whole thing, and, and we'll, we'll come back. When our days there were ended, so they've got um, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Again, the unity of the body of Christ. These are strangers seven days ago, and now they're friends. We don't just say, hey, see you, man. Like, let us know how it goes. We're going to walk you to the beach. We're going to pray for you say farewell, and then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy. We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. The next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip. You guys remember meeting Philip in Acts 6 and in Acts chapter 8. Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, this is strange. Prophets are always strange. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, When we heard this, we, the people, we and the people therefore urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So, Paul gets twice, again, he's already told us when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, the Holy Spirit, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, imprisonment, afflictions await. He gets this through the Spirit, telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Agabus says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So what Paul gets is a prediction. The Spirit is revealing what will certainly happen. But listen to me. The Spirit is not revealing what ought to happen. Do you see the difference? This is what is absolutely going to happen if you, if you do this. But He's not saying do or don't. The Holy Spirit never speaks and says you should not do this. He just says this is, what's, this is what is awaiting you. It is the convictions of the people who love Paul that are trying to dissuade him. When they hear the same message, he's going to go suffer. It's the people, not the spirit, that are dissuading Paul. So let me give you another axiom. Different believers can see the same information and conclude different things. Is that possible? Has that ever happened to you? Where two people who really love the Lord and two people who really know the word of God are seeing the same things and just concluding different. I just We see it different. That's, that's what's going on here. Everybody is given the same information by the Holy Spirit. When Paul goes, he's going to be arrested. Paul says, all right, I'm game. They say, no, don't go. It's very interesting. Look in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Who's the we? It's Luke. Right? Does, is Luke just a worldly chap and that's what's going on? He's like telling Paul, no, you, you, you know, you need to, you know, study or, you know, get, get some retirement, save up and just, you know, 
achieve the American dream. Is Luke a worldly turd ball? Of course not. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote Acts. He might have written Hebrews, and if he did, he's the most prolific author in the entirety of the New Testament. This is a stud brother, and he said, we, all of Paul's companions and the ones that they had just met at Philip's house, they urged him, do not go up to Jerusalem. The spirit in every city says, you will suffer, you will suffer, you will suffer. The church in every city says, therefore don't go, therefore don't go, therefore don't go. Listen to me. God wants us to trust him and to seek his face, to know his word, to consult his people. And then he wants us to act in whatever way we think will bring him most glory. And it is okay if we don't all see the same thing the same way. Uh, listen to what Paul, how Paul responds to this. I got to tell you, this would be massively hard when the Spirit is testifying the same thing in every city and 100% of the people that you love are saying, do not do this. That would be massively hard to override that. If it's, mixed, if it's a mixed bag, some say yay, some say nay, then it's like, okay, well, it's, I'm free to make this. But when everybody is saying, please, 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 don't, don't do it. The, the resolve that Paul has is fantastic. Look in verse 13. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's Paul's conviction. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? Um, it's very interesting, the wording in Greek here. I want to give you a, render, uh, a rendering of the order that Paul puts it. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem? I am ready for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts, he puts his readiness, he stacks it at the end of all these things that he's willing to suffer. I am ready. If you're looking for a, um, a glorious tattoo, I, can, uh, I am ready is a, is a good one to put, on your, to put on your body. Don't get a tattoo. But anyway, that's his conviction. And then the church uh, expresses their resignation. What do you do? What do you do when you see it one way? Paul, the Spirit is telling you what's going to happen so that you will not go. And we're pretty sure of this. And everybody's on the same team. And he just says, look, stop, I'm ready. Verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They trust, they entrust Paul uh, to the Lord. Um, we, uh, Timmy and I were watching a sermon this week and uh, it, he, the guy gave a, a really cool illustration about what it means to trust the Lord. And he was talking about COVID and politics and all these things and so many Christians are asking like, why God, what are you doing? What, what are you up to? Like reveal your plans to us. And he was like, listen, that's not what it means to trust God. And he gave this story about, um, he said when he was on the mission field, there was one, there was one guy that worked just hand in glove with him he was his right-hand guy. He proved himself year after year after year to be faithful to the Lord and therefore faithful to the ministry that was going on there, faithful to the people of God. And he said, this guy did everything with me, for me. He was just true as steel. And he said, I haven't seen him in years, but I promise you, if that back door were to open and he poked his head in and says, give me your car keys, I wouldn't say, why? What are you gonna do? Tell me what your plan is. He said, I would take the car keys and throw it at him and not ask questions. Why? Because I trust that man. With everything I've got, I trust him. And that's the way we're to trust God. 
that we don't need to say, okay, God, I will trust you, but only after you reveal exactly what you're doing and why and all of these things. Like there are times where there's confusion in the world around us and we can just trust God and move forward. And so they say, since you would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. We can trust our God this same way. Um, yeah, we don't have to understand absolutely everything that he's doing before we will, before we will trust him. Um, we're reading uh, the very last of the Chronicles of Narnia, and they get into all kind of problems because they keep saying one part of God's character. He's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. For those of you Chronicles of Narnia fans, we were told two pieces of information about the character of Aslan. Not only that he was not a tame lion, we were told that, but we were told something else. Do you remember? Anybody? We were told that he is good. And our God is the same way. He is not tame. He might very well, listen to me, he might very well send you to a place where you're going to be arrested. He might very well send you to a place where you're going to be beaten, where you're going to be stoned, whipped, beheaded. He might very well send you there. But listen to me. If he does, it is still consistent with his goodness. And therefore, we can trust him all the time. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, we thank you that your name among the nations is worth any sacrifice, uh, anything that you might ask of us that we, um, that we can and ought to be uh, ready at any moment uh, to do anything that you ask because you're good all the time. And so, uh, Lord, we pray uh, we pray that as, as followers of Christ, as, as believers, that we would have this same mind in us, that we would deeply, deeply love the body of Christ, and that we would deeply love the God who redeemed the body of Christ, and that we would deeply love the work that you have sent us on, Lord, that we would trust you above all things. And so would you make it so in us, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The cross of Jesus Christ was, as the man said, a means to an end. We often get so caught up in wanting to know the meaning of things and the implication of things that we lose sight of what is most important. Jesus came that we might have eternal life, and eternal life is to know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. The cross is not the end. It is the means to the end that we would have a soul-satisfying relationship with Almighty God. The cross is proof that God wants relationship with you and with me. One of the most intimate actions people can engage in is eating together. It's hard to eat together without sharing your souls. Over a meal, you're going to learn how people talk to one another you will learn their interests, their desires, their fears, their questions, their history, their skills, their uniqueness. Well, this is the Lord's feast. And we're to come. And we're to know Him. We're to come to know, more importantly, the fact that He already knows us. He knows everything about you and He still invites you to come. So what could keep you from coming to Him if he invites you. The answer is nothing whatsoever unless you believe that something might keep you. 
So come. Be known and be loved. Come. Learn the heart of your triune God who sent his son, who came to die, who came to open our eyes to, to real reality. Come. Know yourself pursued. Know yourself delighted in. Know yourself loved. Come. Welcome to Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us as we eat and drink in faith, remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We need you now. Would you come? In his name.